In the wake of Me Too, Time's Up, and the growing list of public figures who have been called out for sexual assault and misconduct, it can seem like exciting, spontaneous, and satisfying sex is an unattainable ideal. That sex is too deeply buried beneath misinformation, violence, and shame to be enjoyed anymore. And yet, I know from personal experience that that is not true. Despite the odds, people are having great sex all the time, but they don't always get the chance to talk about it. Well, today, listeners, I'm here to change that. My name is Robin, and this is The Peak. Greetings, listeners, and welcome to another episode of The Peak, the talk show about what makes good sex good. Before we get started today, I have a quick announcement. The Peak now has a coffee account, which is basically an online tip jar. This year, we have plans to interview sexual health professionals and interesting people from all around the country to bring you all more episodes and content to pique your interests. If you want to support The Peak, you can find the link to our coffee account on our website or Facebook page. Today, I am joined with my friend Jorge. How are you today? I'm all right. (laughs) Good. So to get started, why don't you tell the listeners a little bit about yourself? Well, my name is Jorge. I am uh, now 38 years old. I celebrated my birthday last week. Happy birthday. Thank you. Um, I... I'm a teacher. Uh, I work in a public school, elementary, third grade. And um, on my free time, I basically like to make people mad and do things <laughs> that uh, I hope will, you know, create change in the world. Yeah. So what do you mean by make people mad? So I tend to question everything. Um Specifically, um, anything that has involved, well, that has included any kind of, uh, experience I've had. And it's, a lot of it is directly rela- uh, related to politics. So I guess you can say I make a lot of people mad because I have participated in some political activism in the past about, about six years. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, so yeah. And what kind of political activism do you do? Well, <laughs> the funny story is that I actually kind of fell into it. I um, I went to City Hall one day in 2013. It was August um, here in San Antonio. And um, I had gone online and, you know, I read on the news how they were uh, considering passing a non-discrimination ordinance here uh, for city employees and public accommodations and and whatnot but mm-hmm. um and this is a non-discrimination ordinance for lgbt yes people. yes i'm sorry yes for lgbtq people and anyway so i was uh i was at work uh, in my classroom and i was reading the news about how they were considering this but i saw that they had a lot of opposition um it was you know when i saw the images online i it, it just seemed like there was uh there's a war going on. Mm-hmm. And so I was curious and I wanted to go speak. And if, and and so uh, I signed up to speak. I turned out to be number 400 and something wow. in a list of, I believe, 
about 550 people. Um, I went because uh, they were having a hearing about the, the ordinance. Um, and when I got there, I didn't even set foot into uh, the chamber. And um, I noticed that there were a bunch of people outside. Uh, some were wearing blue shirts. Others were re wearing red. And what I figured out was that the blue shirts, which were a lot more than the red shirts, were protesting the ordinance. Uh, they were from church uh, or religious organizations. And my past, my trauma just rushed my mind and, and I reacted when I saw all of that. And I started yelling at people and I started uh, causing a commotion. Um, long story short, I ended up on the front page of the newspaper. It was considered the most um, combative night of the the hearings for the ordinance. Um, lots of people that I know saw me on TV. Being a teacher, I was afraid. And anyway, from there on, um, I met some activists that uh, that came up to me. And they said, what organization are you with? I, I said, I'm really not with anybody. I just came and I got mad. And so um, from there on, they just, they scooped me up and I started, I joined Get Equal, which is a uh, grassroots organization for equality. Um, then that disbanded soon after I, I joined and I just kind of have, you know, stuck my nose in different uh, efforts. And I, I went to Standing Rock and, you know, things like that. Wow. have supported the water protectors there and water protectors in Louisiana currently. I went to visit the camp and... And then on social media, I just piss people off because, <laughs> you know, that I question everything. Wow. Yeah. What an interesting origin story. Yeah. yeah the formation so. of an activist. Yeah. 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 So will you tell the listeners a little bit about your identity, your sexual identity and who you are? Sure. Um, do you want the full story? <laughs> I always <laughs> want the full story. I am. Uh, I'm a gay man, cisgender. Um and I love sex. <laughs> Good. Yeah, yeah. So what else can I say? Um, I also like to ask people not only what is your sexual identity, but what is your sexual personality? Wow, that's a complicated story, actually. Um, you know, I say I love sex, but there's a reason behind that. And it's a lot more complicated than most people might uh, perceive it when I make those statements. Um so my sexual personality has been a, uh, a troubling one, actually. Uh, I was raised in a Pentecostal church. Mm -hmm. um, I was born into it, basically. Um, my father passed away when I was about four years old. So my mother, being an, um, an immigrant with a green card, uh, with minimal skills, um, you know, that traumatized her a lot to be left with four children, me being the oldest at four mm -hmm. and losing a husband and not knowing how to, you know, raise a family um, <clears throat> that caused trauma in her. And so her relief was the church. She joined this church. She felt like it was her salvation during that troubling time. And so um, that became my nightmare. Um, eventually, you know, I grew up. I started realizing, shit, I'm gay. <laughs> and, but it was hard because everybody around you was basically the enemy of what, of what you were internally. 
And so, of course, I, I didn't come out until I was about 16. And um, right around the time that I started driving, which was at 19 years old, I became a little bit more independent. I was still living at home. I um, was not going to church, but uh, the influence of church was still there. And so anyway, my only, my, mo- my mother was very strict. So I wanted to go to school. I wanted to finish school. So I stayed at home. I thought it was a best choice for me. Um, and, but I had to abide by my mother's rules and she was very oppressive. Um, so she didn't let me do much. Uh, I had to report to her every time that I went anywhere aside from school and work. Um, and so my only connection, my only outlet to the world that I thought I could, you know, join once I became an adult was the internet. And so when I got on the internet, you had like this infinite access to that world, you know? Um, and so my sexual maturation was through internet hookups and of course, you know, sex is a basic need and, um, and it's pleasurable. However, it gets confusing when it, um, when it be, when it evolves from experiences like internet hookups. And it's a perfect, I'm basically a perfect storm because growing up in the church, I was shamed for my sexuality. Sometimes my mother shamed my body in, in a way she would, always remind me about what I had between my legs. So, you know, she, and it was always during moments when she thought, you know, something was awry that she would, you know, tell me, look in the mirror, look at what you have. So all of that shame, you know, your physical shame, and it just, it created a perfect storm. So I became addicted to sex and I didn't know that for years. I didn't know that. Um, until probably until recently i realized that i suffered from what was sexual addiction and what's funny is that you know if you do the research there really isn't much out there from you know the psychological or the um psychology community nothing about there's not a lot about sexual addiction you know they're still on the fence about it but i can tell you based on what's described about um other addictions that it's pretty much on par you know the the symptoms are there and so anyway i um developed that ad- addiction and of course every ex- new experience um creates a perception of of the world that is you know and especially with something like that that is even more detrimental the more you experience them or you know the sexual experiences and so um so yeah just uh just snowballed into very frequent sex Mm. um the funny thing was that i wasn't always as risky as other people so i always used condoms always um and so when i contracted hiv it was because i had two exposures when the condom broke and after the second exposure i 
of course, I waited a little bit because, you know, based on everything I read about HIV mm-hmm. up until that point, they said, you know, it, the research said that, that you couldn't get tested before, you know, two weeks or something like that because the antibodies wouldn't be present in, in the tests. So I waited a little bit. And I remember waking up one morning and I had a pain in my stomach, like in the center pit of my stomach or my abdomen, sorry. And um, right then and there, I knew something was wrong. Like I just felt this is not my body. And so eventually I went to get tested and eventually I learned that I contracted HIV. And so, um, so yeah, that's been pretty much my sexual experience. And again, like I said, it's complicated because I love sex. It's a basic human need and it's pleasurable. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, sex has been detrimental to me. Well, thank you for sharing all of that. That was a very um, fascinating and detailed introduction to who you are as a person and your relationship with sex. Mm -hmm. Um, I'd like to move forward into my next prompt, which is, um, will you tell me about the first time you had sex or a significant early sexual experience? <laughs> I'm going to take you really deep into the, the gay experience, but that's uh, what we're here for. <laughs> and it's not always pretty. Um, so my first time, of course, I met him online. Uh, my first time was um, I think I was about to turn 20 and um, this I met this guy online and he invited me to his place and um, he I just I, I had no idea you know like what do I do you know for sex like I no, you don't have any role models you grow up in an environment where you know everybody hates gay mm-hmm. and so you don't know what to do so i thought okay well i've heard that they put it up your ass or you put it up the ass and you know and in your mind of course as naturally some of that you know it's it, it it's it arouses you but at the same time it's like well i can see it in my mind but i don't know the physical experience of it so anyway i um went over to his place and it's actually really embarrassing but uh and traumatizing but anyway he was very well endowed and um he wanted me to bottom which is oh man yeah so wanted me to bottom and um of course in the gay world bottom means you are you know you're the uh receptive partner and so i did and it was so painful (laughs) and i had you know and i heard of course, I read online, you know, yes, it's going to hurt it at first, but you'll get used to it. And I thought, okay, this is, you know, this is my cherry being popped, so to speak. And so, but the, that wasn't even, well, maybe that was traumatizing, but it wasn't even the most traumatizing. The most traumatizing part about it was the fact that, um, that I didn't know you had to prepare for that. I didn't know you had to douche, basically. Oh. And so when he pulled out, it was not pretty. And uh, you can just imagine. And I was so ashamed. I was so ashamed. I thought, oh, my God, this is gross. 
And of course, you, what you, you know, based on my background, you know, I, all the shame that I had grown up with came back to me. All the, 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 the things that they had told me about being gay, it's a horrible experience. Why do you want that? Why, why is that attractive? And that all came to me in that moment. So I think that, that's why that experience, which is a very human experience, is, you know, mm-hmm. um, it, it was just, it was traumatizing. So. Oh. I'm so sorry. (laughs) (laughs) There was consent. Don't get me wrong. There was consent, but, but the guy didn't, had no idea who, you know, what my background was and how traumatizing that was and how shameful, but yeah. But yeah. Was there any sort of like warm up or foreplay, so to speak, or was it just like. There was, there was, there was. Yeah. It was not. It was uh, not just like, all right, here comes. Yeah. Like, this entire package. And right now I'm thinking about a scene from, I don't know if you've seen Boy Erased. Um, no, I haven't. So there's a horrible scene. It's very traumatizing and actually involves um, the lack of consent. Mm-hmm. But anyway, um, uh, yeah, it, it was consensual. And, and of course, and like I said, it, it was, it's just, it's just the way it is, you know, that's the physicality of it the dynamics of it you know of having anal sex and you know gay men i'm I'm telling you this story but i'm sure a lot of gay men can tell you the same story oh yeah yeah yeah. and i mean it doesn't sound dissimilar to the experience that a lot of straight women or at least women who have had sex with men yeah yeah no definitely that's that can be painful too especially the first time yeah yeah so (laughs) Anyway, that's that. <laughs> yeah. Well, <laughs> yeah. So would you tell me about a time that it was good for you? I'm actually interested in good, like, yeah. like what was the first time that you had sex with someone and it was great? <sighs> the first time that it was with someone and it was great. Well, I eventually learned how to douche. So, <laughs> <laughs> so of course it was going to be great. Um, it was shoot and believe me this is like i'm drawing blanks because i've i've had so many experiences it's not even funny but um significant ones okay so whatever comes to mind yeah john okay so i I knew a guy named john Uh, he was bisexual or he is a lot younger than me Um, by then i was 30 um and I think he was in his early 20s. Um, and John was just a guy that I hung out with. Um, it was like a makeshift relationship, I guess. Uh, monogamous relationship. But anyway, we were hanging out and sex with him was great. I mean, it was, I don't know. I just, uh, it was the first time that I felt uh, desired other than just this sex you know personality wise we used to laugh a lot uh he thought i was funny um and so yeah because there was that emotional connection um yeah and just physically we were just connected and um so yeah uh, that was a an amazing time sexually yeah 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 can you think of any other really stellar experiences that come to mind uh, any other stellar experiences? Um, 
are just really memorable. Memorable. See, the, the, the funny thing is that, um, like I've said, sex has been complicated and it's a very common uh, experience for gay men, especially one who has grown up like me. I mean, to tell you the truth about the most maybe exhilarating experience probably has been under the influence of drugs. And because whether people want to accept this or not, drugs help enhance experiences and they're beautiful. You know, we have to admit they are beautiful experiences. Mm -hmm. And gay men tend to tie, a lot of gay men tend to tie drugs, stimulants to sex. So when I started experimenting with stimulant, stimulants, it, the sexual experiences were mm. amazing, just purely amazing. Mm -hmm. And so, um, so yeah, I think the first time, <laughs> the first time I, I uh, did, took a stimulant and had sex without even knowing the effect it would have on my sexual experience, it was glorious. Um, I don't do it anymore, but. <laughs> I can tell you that that's, that's, yeah, that's how I would classify or rank. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And you mean more than just poppers? Oh, yeah. Because, oh, don't get me started on poppers. Yeah. Even, well, <laughs> with poppers, you know, um, there have been times where I've treaded, you know, in that, what I call dangerous territory because you're, you're playing with your heart rate and your, you know, your circulatory system because both of them are stimulants, you know, whatever mm -hmm. drug. So I started out, um, with, uh, Molly. Mm -hmm. I had teacher friends who I would hang out with and they were the ones that introduced me to Molly before then I would never try a stimulant. I was just always weed and, you mm -hmm. know, uh, alcohol. So I, first time I did that and then I, I mean, I, then the poppers were there and, you know, um, and so, yeah, it, it, the combination was glorious. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So yeah, more than poppers, no, with poppers. <laughs> so yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, um, but yeah, I, I, and I want to say, you know, it's, it is a complicated experience because the experience itself is beautiful, but it's not convenient, you know, and so you learn to, to not like it because of the effects it has on your body and because of how it affects your everyday life, mm. you know, to function as a human being. So, yeah. Yeah. So when did you decide that you wanted to back off of your use of um, stimulants? <sighs> it was because I started, um, after Molly, I started doing cocaine and it got really serious. Um, cocaine just was exhilarating and mind you it was rich ritualistic also my sexual experiences under the influence of cocaine uh, was ritualistic very specific mm -hmm. um can't explain to you why but it was very specific um but however cocaine made me crazy cocaine is a type of drug that i mean it just for some people like me, it just unleashes the mind. Um, you have no, um, you just can't stop yourself. So I remember there were a few times that 
because I ran out of coke and I was having sex um, and still wanted to, you know, I started forming other addictions. Um, the meth pipe was around mm -hmm. during those moments. And so I started to take hits here and there. Mm -hmm. And when that happened and coming off of that, which is a terrible experience, I thought, okay, I need to start looking inward and I need to decide what I need, what it is I'm going to choose for my life. Um, because at that point, knowing that I was um, undetectable and at a, at a disadvantage, um, drugs would just, you know, I, I would plummet and I would die very fast. And so, um, so from there began my journey of fixing everything. Um, <clears throat> sorry. Okay. You can take a minute if you need. Yeah. Um, yeah, I just had to look back and figure out how everything that um, opposed me for being gay affected me. And I don't think people realize how discrimination affects the human being. I think we most people understand it um, very superficially. I think the majority of human beings understand it very superficially. Um, but now looking back and still working on myself, um, I've had a profound um, understanding of discrimination and how it's linked to our health, overall health, and, and how it's linked to whether you thrive or not. So, yeah. What do you mean thrive? <sighs> People don't realize that uh, trauma eventually can lead to death. That sounds extreme for some people, but it does. It eventually will lead there uh, in some way. Uh, and of course, there are levels, of, you know, of experiences. But I think that all the trauma that I've experienced growing up gay and all, you know, the trauma that I experienced through Shane um, formed a mind that can only function in ways that lead you to death um and they it all of that manifests itself in different ways addiction depression anxiety um but with all of those symptoms it's basically a, a slow uh decadence of the human body um and it starts with the mind mm -hmm. yeah there's and people when i say mind and People have to remember that it's a physical thing, the brain. It's a very physical thing. And it has, it, it undergoes physiological processes that are connected to every other organ, to every other part of our body. And so, yeah, it's a slow decadence of the system of the human body. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So you talked about <clears throat> being raised in the Pentecostal church mm -hmm. and, um, uh, conflicting with them 
outside of City Hall in 2013. Oh, yeah. Oh, and yeah. What is your relationship with the church and with your own spirituality? Oh. If you're comfortable going into it. I'm more than comfortable. (laughs) So, of course, growing up gay and being told that your conscious awareness is basically sinful, your reality is sinful, um, you start to question God. Um, because they teach you that God can change you and God is, you know, he performs miracles. At 15, I got baptized because I believed that, I literally believed that once I was dipped in that water, I would come out and that whatever gay demon or essence would wash away. And when nothing worked, eventually I started questioning God. You know, my mom would always yell at me especially when I came out, tell God, yell at him, curse at him if you need to, but get him to listen to you. And and I would cry to her and I'd say, I have, I've done it all. Like <laughs> everything you have told me, I've done it all. And so anyway, I, um, I eventually stopped believing in God um, because what God would allow a human being to experience life like I have. And so, and that, that didn't happen until about when I was 31. Yeah, 31. Um, that I just completely let go of God. And um, I became a militant atheist for a while. I was angry. I was lashing out. And so um, now I'm, I'm not as militant. I'm understanding of the processes involved in the formation of the religious person, the religious mind. Um, but I'm still kind of, I'm still actively intolerant of certain beliefs that religions have, especially when they engender discrimination. Um, I will speak out against it. Um, I hold my family to the fire who are still moderate in that, you know, with with that issue um and so but but yeah i basically i mean at this point i'm just a gay theist (laughs) a gay man who realized that you know god doesn't exist because he wouldn't do this to anybody like me and being gay or existing the way people treat gay people just to allow the human experience to happen because the human experience is suffering and it's tough to hear, but it is. It, it really is suffering. In some form or fashion, it's suffering. Um, but, but yeah, I just I started. Re- and then, of course, you, you start. I was always very intelligent. And, but it, I still had this part of, of my mind that rejected science. Even though I thought, no, those are scientists. You know, they, they've, they've done their work. We should probably listen to them, especially for somebody like me who was trying to um, seek science sometimes to to affirm my existence. I um, I still had a barrier, but eventually I let that you know I broke down down that barrier and I started reading more. I started learning more about science and biology and started paying attention more to that. And I and I started thinking, well. This is not God. This is a lot more complex than what the God of the Bible says. 
And so, yeah, for that other reason, I eventually became a gaytheist. <laughs> so did the end of your faith in God occur before or after you were diagnosed with HIV? Oh, before. Before. Yeah, before. Um, <laughs> and it's funny because some things are hard to leave in the past or some he things are hard to retrain the brain to ignore or to obliterate from your reality. Um, when I found out about my di diagnosis, I, um, I went back to the whole, uh, to the idea that, that religious people, um, uh, promulgate, which is, you know, atheists are sure to face the worst of the worst in this world because they, you know, they have abandoned God. And I thought about that. I, I, even though I had already for maybe about four, yeah, about four years, I had already left God. And, but, but that, all of that came back to me and I thought, you know, just for an instant, but I, it came to me and I, and I thought, no, there's no way, you know, like, I went back to the science. I thought more about the science and I thought, no, this is just nature, you know? And, um, and so, yeah, I had been a while after. Mm -hmm. So would you please talk about, um, how you responded when you were diagnosed and what happened next? Because I know, especially with all of the propaganda about HIV and the way uh, yeah. that it's spoken about, people imagine that as soon as you get the diagnosis, that's the end. Like the image they have is one of like, just like death and suffering. And oh, yeah. like, that's the end of your life, but it clearly isn't. Mm -hmm. So before I, I answer that, I want to say like, don't be afraid to, to ask whatever you want. I'm, okay. Ask me whatever you want. I want people to know. Um, how was it? The only word I can describe is shocked, stunned. Best two words to describe it. I was quiet. I was in this small room at Metro Health, um, which was a horrible experience. I, I, I really don't like sanitation. San Antonio Metro Health, right? Well, I don't like them because of the experience that I went through. Um, number one, when I, after I went to get tested, uh, they called me and they were very weird about telling me to go back to get tested a second time because usually the process is they, you have the initial test, but then they go in and they look, they do a, uh, I believe it's a genetic test for HIV where they go and I, they, identify the HIV genes um, in your cells. So like what strand of the virus it is? Yeah, basically like the genetics, they have to because, you know, sometimes they link it to, you know, uh, trends in communities for mm -hmm. HIV. And, um, and so they would call me on the phone and I would, I would answer. I, of course I was desperate because I knew that, you know, I knew that, the number began with 207, that's from the city. And I thought, okay, let me answer the phone. But they were very, 
ambiguous as to what they wanted from me or how they wanted me to respond. Some would say, well, we just need to test you again. And I would ask them is, and they're like, well, um, let us know when you can come in. And I'd say, well, I work or I'm busy. I, you know, I have work. Um, let me, let me figure it out. And then when I would call back, I would get a different answer. Just they weren't always clear. And I felt like they weren't, they weren't synthesized, at, you know, in their uh, department. So I, I would get different answers on the phone. And then finally a gentleman told me, he said, no, you need to come in. We need to do a, a, uh, basically a, a, a confirmation test. So I went, put me in this little room and they started asking me questions um, about who I had slept with. But there I was, I was scared. You know, I, I, they were asking me all these questions. I'm like, I'm not worried about that right now. I'm worried about my future. This is my entire life. This is my entire life before then and my entire life after. And the reason why I say before is because I always had a fear of HIV, especially growing up Pentecostal. That was the one thing that they used, that they weaponized against. Yeah. I, so you, you're 38. How old were you in 1990? In 1990, I believe I was nine years old. Nine years old. So yeah. you came of age... Right. The, yeah, maybe toward the end of the what people would call the AIDS era, mm -hmm. uh, because by 96 is when they introduced the first antiretrovirals. And so, um, so yeah, but it, I mean, I remember when I was in third grade hearing about it. People were talking about it all over the place. And of course, the church was talking about it. Mm -hmm. And so I, you know, they weaponized that and they, they, they use that against the community. And so growing up hearing that and being told, even by my pastor, he, you know, when I came out, he would call me into his office and tell me stories about how so-and-so that he knew died of AIDS for being gay. And so that's what I was thinking about in that moment. I was thinking about my past and my future. My past because I felt like I failed. I felt like I had just gotten into activism the year prior and I felt defeated. I felt like shit, they're going to think what they, I, I'm basically confirming for them what they believe that being gay um, will basically uh, afford you HIV. <laughs> and, and then of course I was thinking about my future. I understood HIV to a certain extent. I knew there was a pill. I knew that people survived and took the, but I didn't really, being skeptical and I, I just didn't know if I could trust the medical community. What was, you know, if these people that I already distrust, um, who are the met, the, the health department of the city aren't, I feel are not doing enough for me or are doing it in a way that is traumatizing. I, I don't know. I, I, I was unsure about my future. I just didn't trust anything. And so one other thing I do have to mention that I was already upset about was the fact that um, at the time of my diagnosis, I had, I was living at home with my mom. Mm -hmm. By then, you know, she started coming around about the gay thing and um, 
but um, when they couldn't give me a straight answer about doing the confirmation test over the phone, they took it upon themselves to go look for me. So the, the Metro Health, what they do is when they um, when they detect something, they they want to ensure that you go and get that confirmation test, and they want to ensure that they're basically stopping the spread of HIV. Mm-hmm. And so they didn't. I mean, I was telling them over the phone, I'm willing to go in. I just, when should I go in? And, you know, I just always, for about maybe six phone calls, I just got the runaround. I didn't know when I should go and get tested. Um, and so, um, they went and they went to look for me. So I was upstairs. My mother was downstairs. She had no idea. They ring the doorbell and there they are. They had, you know, on the side of their Prius, they had uh, the the city of San Antonio, uh, what is it, Crest, and um, and then they had a red bag, which obviously, and I, I, from what I remember, I think it had, you know, the cross, the medical cross, mm-hmm. on it, and for my mom to see that, she's like, what is going on? You know, she freaked out and I could tell. And I told her to sit down and I ran out there and I said, what are y'all doing here? Like, so I, I eventually grew to really dislike Metro Health because I think they, they made the experience, like I said earlier, more traumatizing for me. I had no privacy when I was diagnosed. I just, it, I could not have a private moment. I couldn't, you know, they, in, in a way, it's like they took a part of that experience from me. Mm-hmm. And um, because they don't know who they're dealing with. They don't know that I was the son of a woman who was obsessed about being anti-gay. And I grew up with the, you know, these ideas of HIV. They didn't know yeah. us. And for my mom to see that, I'm sure she thought about it. I, you know, you feel it. So what was their game plan? Were they like, hello, we're here at your house. We're going to prick you and exactly. test you again. What? Yes, that's hell? what they do. They go to basically take blood samples. And I ran them off. I said, I can't do this here. Like, you're invading my family space. And this is a very important issue. And it's up to me. Like, you can't be here. Like, my mother's in there, you know, I have to be the one to break it to my mother, not you all. So I ran them off. Mm-hmm. I said, you're not taking a sample for me. Go away and I will be there. I've been calling you all. And so they left. Um, but yeah, I going back to that room, they started, th- those were the first things that they started asking me, who have you been with? And I just felt like this is not... This is not a democracy for HIV people, HIV infected people. Like, I don't live in a democracy for HIV infected people. We're being persecuted in some way with, with the idea or the false belief that, that we're trying to prevent the spread of HIV. Well, it's going to take a lot more than that. And you're doing it the wrong way. Yeah. Um, and I can talk about that, what I feel should be a better way but they're doing it the wrong way they're persecuting people they're 
quarantine they're basically core trying to quarantine people and that's and that i have no other word to describe it that's what i felt i felt like they were trying to quarantine me well it certainly sounds like they were prioritizing their clerical duties mm-hmm. over any semblance of a bedside manner yeah so I'm really sorry they treated you that way. Yeah. Um, By the way, I gave them no information. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that was a big fuck you to them. And yeah. not because I didn't care about other people. I'm a responsible adult. I'm a reasonable adult. Mm-hmm. If I knew that I had exposure with somebody else, I would probably more than likely tell those that person or those people. Um, but even then I didn't think the risk was, I felt like it was one, you know, it was the two exposures were with the same person. Um, so I, I felt like it didn't go far. Um, and of course, you know, as a responsible adult, you talk it out. But again, when you have a human being who's being told that, they basically have a life-threatening illness. And incredibly stigmatized Stigma- I mean, the last thing they want to do is tell you who they slept with. And sex is stigmatized. We live in a society that where, you know, sex sometimes is stigmatized. And, and the fact that you probably, they, you know, to think or... or yeah, to think that, you know, they might judge you in some way because you've had multiple sex, sexual experiences. I mean, that in itself is not going to want you, it's not going to be, um, it's not going to allow you to be free about sharing information. Yeah. But again, more than anything, it's just, it was a personal experience and I shut down. I, I just, I didn't want to give them any information because I didn't care to give it to them in that moment. Yeah. Like so, you are, I just couldn't. I couldn't. Yeah, yeah. Like you're fully capable of speaking to your partner yourself. I just wanted to, honestly, the first thing I wanted to do was talk. After the initial shock, was talk about where do I go to get that pill? Yeah. That was honestly that after that the initial shock. That was the first thing. I didn't want to talk to you about who I slept with. I don't. I want that pill. Yeah, it's That's like talk to. I, they should talk to you about the treatment first. Exactly, and, and it's very important that that they do because treatment. Um, there have been studies that have been done on um, the uh, basically to rate the success or to to qualify the success of of antiretroviral treatment, and one of the things that they have found out is that the earlier you are put on treatment, the less adverse health uh, experiences, you'll have less health, uh, adverse health experiences throughout your lifetime than a person who delays treatment. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's extremely important. It's a matter of life or death for people to access treatment right away. And I mean, in an instant, because um, I've learned that the system is can be slow and I and I think even if they were to find ways to cut that wait time, 
I think it would still take at least <laughs> two weeks. I had to wait maybe about four months before I got to take the pill. So. And what do you take? Currently, I'm on a antiretroviral called Odefsi. Mm-hmm. Um, it's one of the most advanced uh, treatments out there, uh, produced by Gilead uh, Pharmaceutical. And um, basically, it's a it's a three for one. So there are three different uh, chemicals or medications within that pill um, that help uh, keep the virus from uh, multiplying, making copies. Mm-hmm. So, so to speak, it keeps the virus latent, suppressed. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, and I have to take it every day. Mm-hmm. Uh, 100% adherence is, again, a matter of life or death. You know, if you stick to it, you'll live a normal life or close to normal. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's just the one pill? The one pill. That's amazing. Yeah. And it's amazing, but it's also not the most fun experience. Number one, it's unnatural for a human being to take a pill every day. It's just no human being should have to live that way, but you do it. Yeah. Uh, to stay alive. And just the idea that, again, there's a fine line between life and death. It's that pill, you know, it's to know that your life depends on that is, it's it's hard to swallow, (laughs) pun intended. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. So can you talk a bit about undetectability? Yes. Um, so undetectable basically means that the the treatment has been able to suppress the virus, keep it in what they call latent reservoirs, um, and to keep it from reproducing, making copies, um, and attacking the your T cells, which are the basic building blocks of your or the fighter cells of your immune system. And so um, it doesn't mean that there isn't detectable copies in your blood it just means that they are at extremely low levels um i think right now undetectable is considered less than 200 copies of the virus and when you're at that point um again like i said it keep it suppresses the virus but at the same time it it prevents um it prevents transmission so study after study has found out that undetectable means untransmittable as long as you are adhering to treatment and as long as treatment is successful and uh, and it, it, it's a very complicated complex um, issue right um, treatment there have been studies that say that a hundred percent adherence um, and starting treatment early also is advantageous in the in the way um, the virus reacts to lack of treatment for whatever reason. So, for example, if you start treatment early and you uh, adhere to it, you're very disciplined with it. Um, If for whatever reason you have to stop taking the the pill, um, it would it um the chances of the virus uh, to rebound would be a lot more difficult 
than for someone who started late and who is not really adhering to. So earlier you start, the more you're loyal to it, the less uh, strong, I guess you could say, HIV will rebound. Um, and the opposite is, you know, the other story. But, yeah. Yeah. So even if you were to, like, miss a pill, if -hmm. you have been adhering very diligently for Mm -hmm. the last several years or so, so, it would be less intense than someone who had, say, just started a month ago and, like, isn't as regimened. Yes. So, basically, you're, for whatever reason, they're, they're finding that in some ways early treatment and adhere, uh, a high level of adherence um, puts the, I don't want to use these words, but it's the only way that I can describe it, basically has put some patients in a state of remission where the virus will not rebound as quickly. Mm-hmm. Uh, they have found that there are some patients who started early um, and stop taking the medication won't rebound after maybe a month, sometimes right. even longer. However, that's you don't you know. Yeah. And <laughs> and I and I want to I want to follow that with don't play with fire. You know, it's still a very delicate thing. Every everybody's body is different, reacts differently to medication. So, I mean, you're better off just adhering to it. Um, Medical professionals do recommend that, you know, a good percentage for the month, for every month, is about 85% adherence. Mm-hmm. That's that's quite low, even. Yeah. I would... I yeah. Mean, but I've talked to other people who are undetectable, and they tell me, girl, I've skipped some, you know, some days, and I'm still undetectable. And I've run through that before. I've gone through that before. I've actually have been through times when my insurance switches and then I have to get approval from the doctor and I run out of medication. It could be like two or three days. However, I've never, every time I go to the doctor, I've always, have always come out undetectable. Mm-hmm. Um, I started relatively early, even though I started four months after diagnosis. I was diagnosed pretty early, which is actually a very, another important thing. Um, I was diagnosed early and I relatively, I started relatively early. Four months isn't really that much, yeah. that long for the virus to, it could, well, I don't want to say that, but for some people, the virus won't multiply as quickly within that time frame and mm-hmm. mine didn't. So I was fortunate enough to catch it early and to start relatively early. That's so, good. Yeah. Yeah. Um. So how long does it take once you start um, the antiviral treatment to become undetectable? So typically they tell you about seven months, not seven months. Um, I believe, well, typically it really is only about seven days, but some doctors will tell you, you know, um, it for some people, actually, no, no, I'm wrong, that it was... For me, it was pretty early, but, and some people have said that, you know, after starting, I believe I've read where some people have started, uh, have dropped to undetectable levels pretty quickly, like within a week. However, every case is different because 
those people probably were diagnosed early. They didn't have a lot of copies of the virus in their body. And they started treatment very early. Mm-hmm. So it just depends on, it's a case by case. But but yeah, for me, it, it's I think it started really quickly. And the reason why I knew is because I became very ill the week that I started. Extremely ill. My... I spoke to my doctor and she told me that it was probably what they call um, immune. It's like immune, some immune system reconstitution syndrome, something of that called that. Um, and so it's basically your immune system. Your The T cells are rebounding because the virus is now being suppressed. So that shift from being at a certain level of you know T cells to to a probably a quick rebound it puts your immune system out of whack and you'll you'll feel like you have like the worst flu in the world. <laughs> that makes sense. Yeah. Um. So, would you be willing to talk a bit about how you communicate with your partners as an undetectable person? So, how do I communicate? it's hard. It's hard to find the right moment because there's really never a right moment for somebody to hear. But, um, typically I, um, especially if I'm, it's somebody that I'm interested. I mean, typically I just, after they, I wait a little bit, you know, we chit chat a little, you know, get to know me. Um, but eventually, you know, once they, once I feel like they're comfortable with, with me, then I'll, you know, I'll say, well, got to let you know I'm undetectable. And the responses so far haven't been that bad. Mm-hmm. Um, but there have been people that, you know, they just completely won't. They freak out and they're like, I can't do this. I, you just sense it. You know, they they treat you like they patronize you. You know, they tend to patronize you. Um you know, they treat you nicely, but it's like overtly nice. Mm-hmm. And then after that, they just, they won't give you the time of day. Yeah. Uh, they're nice to you. They won't, you know, uh, they won't say any, you know, they won't say anything mean. Who knows what they say, you know, behind your back. But, <laughs> you know, typically people, you know, face to face, they, they respond. They have responded fairly okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. But it's not easy. I mean. I read an article recently that said that, you know, there surveys have been done on the gay community and about 70% of gay men who are negative are still, they're still plagued by the stigma of HIV. So, mm-hmm. so yeah, it's not easy. <laughs> I don't imagine yeah. it is. Yeah. Um, so what do you wish people knew? about HIV, most of all? There's a lot. Um, Number one, as far as policy and the medical community is concerned, I think they have a lot to, they have a lot of work to do still. 
I think that that trauma um, based or trauma that that stems from discrimination will lead to HIV. And I think the first step in prevention is to target the communities in compassionate ways to target those communities that are stigmatized, that are discriminated against, to target them and find them the help that they need for their mental health before anything else. Because you can tell me that prevention is safe sex, abstinence, or, you know, to, to limit your exposure. But the most important part of prevention that they ignore is mental health. Because I can tell you that even though I used condoms for, and, and, and I want to clarify because I, rem, I was remembering John <laughs> and other people that I've trusted. I mean, I didn't always use a condom with them, but you know, I, always turned out okay with, you know, those people that I had some sort of relationship or was in a committed relationship with. But for the outside of that, I always used a condom and it failed me. So, and, and to tell people to be abstinent is of course ridiculous. It's unreasonable. It's unreasonable. And to tell people to limit their exposure by limiting how many partners they have is ridiculous for people like me because I had an addiction. And no matter what you told me about limiting, you know, exposure, I, I was exposing myself. And I believed that, it, again, it, it's all based on how traumatized I was. Um, my brain developed to not have limits to uh there have been studies that 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 um have said that that people who have been traumatized and you know during their childhood end up um participating in risky behaviors which includes risky sexual behaviors now i was using condoms however i increased the likelihood of being exposed to HIV by sleeping with multiple people. And so eventually, in hindsight, I, I think about it this way. HIV was supposed to get me because the trauma was there. It evolved into HIV. The trauma evolved into other things, addictions. And I think that's the, the part that people don't get, that for a lot of us, HIV is not just a physical thing you know, or a sexually physical thing. It's the mind. Um, I was watching a documentary recently on dolphins and I believe cormorants, how they work together to hunt fish. And I remember seeing the fish going crazy. You know, they're going through this moment of, you know, it's do or die. And they're leaping out. They're doing whatever they can. They're desperate to to escape that experience. And for gay people or gay men like me who have been raised like me, who have experienced uh, discrimination at, you know, either close to my experience or worse, or um, that we are like the fish. 
there are people there are the dolphins they're very intelligent they know how to manipulate the lgbtq community they know how to persecute it they know what it what in some ways i think they know how others will react to them and um and so they're persecuting us and you know we're going crazy and we're living these lives of addictions and our minds are just we don't know what to do we don't know how to live life and there is hiv the, the cormorant waiting for us and in some ways it's just i think about it i think that's nature in some way it's nature but we are a species that knows how to reason all that and and i think if you know these medical professionals realize that hey we need to start talking about or revamping prevention because what you're doing is still not working and the way you're treating people when you do want to stop you know the spread of hiv is is really bad for for the experience after that yeah yeah so so in your opinion what would be some meaningful changes that could be made in medicine and public policy about um how to protect public health and individual health in mm -hmm. regards to hiv i think it's going to take not just the professionals i think it's just going to take a cultural shift in understanding mental health um because little do people realize that every experience that leads them to to a lot of illnesses are start with the mind and how life has or the experiences that you live through life have impacted your mind to lead you to behave in certain ways and or take certain risks and so i think it's going to take a cultural shift in understanding that mental health is the precursor to every other illness and places or entities like metro health need to put on the number one number one on the list of hiv prevention mental health promoting mental health for uh, stigmatized communities because we're not the only ones you hear about african-american women why is it that their numbers are high they're stigmatized communities there's something there there's discrimination there's trauma and that trauma evolves into hiv yeah. So. That's so much to receive. Thank you mm -hmm. so much for sharing everything about that experience. Thank you for the opportunity <laughs> to share. <clears throat> You're welcome. Um, the last prompt I have for you is um, back to my four main prompts, which is what have you learned about yourself and sex and how have you changed since you first began hooking up and where you are now? Well, there are a number of things that play into that, but um, I realized that I didn't love myself enough. I really, really, and again, any stigmatized person starts to believe or your brain is formed in a way that that was well formed by by the hand of those that that persecute you or persecuted you when so, did you realize this this past year <laughs> yeah 
Go on. It's I been a journey. It. I started realizing that I didn't have a healthy perception of how I interacted with human beings because I didn't know how to love myself. I still kind of struggle with that. I just, it's hard for me like to believe that anybody would physically want me. Um, and then in, there, there are other complicated things that, that, uh, that society does to the mind of people who don't fit the mold, uh, the binary and, you know, yeah. and the sexuality, the expectations of sexuality becomes really confusing. So even in the gay world, we have these uh, rules for each other that, that are kind of shaming. And so with all of that, I just felt like, and, and we do it to, and to this day, we do it to each other. We kind of reject each other for being gay. In some way, we reject each other. We may call, you know, we may, on Grinder, we may call it, oh, I'm only into, you know, the muscle bound guy, or I'm only into this type. Gays are very picky. <laughs> They're very picky, but it's because of stigma. It's a because of discrimination. They don't realize it, but it's that their brains have, their minds have been formed into that. And so with all of that, with all those rules and with, with, with my, I have to include my relationship with my mother. She was not very affectionate. So I didn't know how to connect physically with people. Um, and I, and the reason, one other reason why I evolved into having a sexual addiction is because you're chasing that emotional connection that there's just like this deep understanding of connection with between one human being and another that I never really had and i was i think subconsciously i was looking for it in every sexual experience but i couldn't find it because by the same token i didn't want to connect with that person that i was having a sexual experience with more than the sexual experience so um so yeah it um it's it's been very nascent but i'm realizing that that a lot of that has to my self lack of self love mm -hmm. and self respect yeah so yeah well thank you yeah. so so much for being my guest today yeah. and thank you for being brave and mm -hmm. open about every part of your experience can i say something yes. <laughs> in response to that um i appreciate that um but there's one thing that I want to tell people. Absolutely. Um, my friends, I, you've seen my posts online. Um, I've done some things or have posted some things that people will say brave. And I remember a text that my friend sent me. He's like, girl, you have balls of steel. And I thought about it. And I don't think people understand that a lot of times when people say things and are bold i don't know if it's courage i think it's more desperation to normalize the experience so that basically you survive you keep on living and your survival depends on being vocal and and uh, yeah being desperate to say it well thank you for surviving 
Thank you. <laughs> Thank you for having me oh, man. <laughs> while surviving. Do you have any closing words for our listeners? <sighs> Look inward. Take care of your mind. Love yourself. Thank you so much. Have a great night. You too. Thank you. Thanks for listening to The Peak, which is hosted and produced by me, Robin. Our theme music was written by Johnny Manchild of Johnny Manchild and the Poor Bastards. You can follow us on Facebook or at our website, thepeak.blueberry.net. That's thepeak.blubrry.net. If you have a question or comment about anything we talked about today, or if you would like to be a guest on the show, send me an email at thepeakpod at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.